couple things. Tonight, don't forget, we have our annual congregational meeting. We really want you to be here. I realize there's a million things that are competing for it, but we hope you'll be here. We have child care for infants through grade six. It starts at 6.30, but we're inviting people to come at 5.45 for registration and dessert. So if for some reason you have a good sound excuse rather than an excuse that sounds good and you can't be here, if you would, um, if you're a member, we'd invite you to come and vote at the absentee ballot table right outside this door. And again, this is not just for members. Come in and hear from different ministry leaders about what the Lord is doing here. We're excited for that. A couple other things. Don't forget, there's a newcomer um, gathering. If you're new to the church, you want to learn about the church, come next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We have a gathering. And if you're interested in dedicating your children, just look through this. There's one coming up in October. Um, the Kids Club and choir registration begin next week. But also, don't forget that the women's in-home gatherings are starting very soon. So take a look there. If you're interested in um, finding out more about that, there's a group near you. You can sign up on the website. And um, we'll look forward to that. And then be praying for Pastor John as he begins our study of 2 Timothy on Tuesday night starting on October 2nd. So just be sure to look through that. In the meantime, we're in James chapter 1. So let me get my clicker here. Remind you that we're talking about what does real faith look like? How do I know if my faith is genuine? Because you can't see faith. And so... James is giving us ways that we can say, okay, if, you, if I say I'm a Christian and I, I'm saved by God's grace through faith, what is that going to look like in my life? And so the first thing we've been emphasizing is that how do I respond to trouble? How do I respond? My wife and I were driving down the road yesterday on I-95. We're going biking, and my wife looks out the rearview mirror. She goes, our bike just fell off <laughs> on I-95. It's laying in the middle of I-95. That's really a, a, a minor trial, at least for us. The people behind us, probably more major, but <laughs> nobody hit it. And thankfully, the bike is in pretty good shape, thankfully. Um, but anyway, how do we respond when difficulties happen to us? And so we've been looking at God's giving us some directions on how to respond to, to trials. And so let, let's review them. We're told to rejoice. So consider it all joy because you know these are building character. We learned that. We should also ask God for wisdom. Lord, I don't know how to act here. I don't know what to say or do. So please give me this functional wisdom that helps me to be gentle. We said that we also have to go, hey, remember, there's eternity. So if you're poor and that's your trial, you're really rich. And if you're a rich man without Christ, you need to think beyond this life. Last week, we saw that we also need to recognize the truth about trials and temptations, that it's easy to blame God for the wrong things. Why are you doing this? I learned this week that Plato used to say, because God is good, he doesn't send any troubles on us. I think that's wrong. God is good, but he sends troubles on us. What he doesn't send on us is temptations. Remember, we learned that when we're tempted, that we're being drawn away by our own lusts, or, for clarification, of course, Satan can tempt us, and demons can tempt us, but just... Be sure to note that we don't need to have any external temptations. It can come from within. But this morning, James is sort of going to turn and say, however, knowing now that trials do come from God, temptations don't come from God, I don't want you to be confused as to where good things come from. So we're going to begin in James chapter 1 and verse 16. If you have your Bible there, let's pray and then we'll, we'll look at it. 
Father, thank you for Benjamin's leading us in worship and his prayers. And now we're praying specifically that your word will go forth with power. We thank you that, Lord, the word of God is, is what the spirit uses to change us. So feed us, correct us, encourage us, and even convert those who need to hear your word. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, look at verse 16 to begin. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So this is sort of a hinge verse. He's, he says, look, remember, remember, these things don't come from God, but, but it's sort of looking back, but now it's looking forward to what he's going to say. He says, what I want you to do next is learn to rehearse God's goodness and then live like you belong to him. Now, what does it mean to rehearse God's goodness? So let's read verse 17. He says, don't be deceived. Every good thing, in contrast to temptations, every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. So I think what, what, what James is telling us and God's telling us is that just stop and think. Anything good that ever happens in your life, whether it's you had a good meal or you won a million dollars, whether you're cured of cancer, you have a child, any good thing in our life comes from a good unchanging God. Now, in, in one sense, you're like, well, isn't that kind of a given? But actually, it isn't a given. Because most people, even I, I find myself as a Christian, I am quick when something bad happens to look immediately like, all right, um, what's going on here, right? But I am not as quick to just rehearse the fact that everything good in my life comes from God. So, so let's talk about this. He says, it descends from the Father of lights. And why does he say that? Why doesn't he just leave us with, hey, listen, good things come from God. And, and we're told to rehearse that. Psalm 103, bless the Lord. Don't forget his benefits. So just take a moment. Think about, you know, things could be better. But what good things have happened to you? Well, if they've happened, he says, number one, remember, they've come from God. But he calls them the Father of lights. As I was studying this, I learned that when God is pre presented as the Father in the Bible, it's often to refer to his creative power. So, for example, in Job 38, it says, does the rain have a father? So think about God, our good creative father who loves us and gives good gifts to us. But, but why does he call him the father of lights? Like, what's he talking about here? I think what he's doing here is he's talking about one of God's good gifts, the sun and the moon. And I'll explain why. Remember in the book of Genesis, as God was unfolding his creative power and his goodness to mankind, he said, let there be two lights in the heavens to, to rule the day and the night. And so it is a good thing to have the sun. I think we would be in trouble if we didn't have the sun. But, but he's not referring to the sun primarily to say... Um, God's good, he gave us the sun, but rather he's going to say, think about the sun and the heavenly bodies, right? The planets and so forth. He then, he says, God is the father of lights with whom 
There is no variation or shifting shadow. So, have you ever thought about how remarkably consistent the sun is? Like, how in the world? I don't even understand this stuff, but, but people can now tell us exactly when the sun's going to rise 10 years from now, by the, to the second. You're like, what if the sun's late that day? What if he gets in traffic? So, so it's interesting because the heavenly bodies, the planets, the word planao in Greek means to wander. And before people were able to, to ascertain that, that these planets are very fixed and orderly, that was why they called them planets, because they're like, they just wander around in the sky. Now we go, no, it's the exact opposite. They don't wander around, they are exact. We could tell you a thousand years from now when there's going to be an eclipse of the sun. So James compares God to these orderly planets. And what's the comparison? They don't change. God is unchanging. Unlike us, who from day to day can be moody, who can, who can fail to keep our words. James says, look, you have a good, unchanging God. This verse reminds me of Malachi chapter 3, where the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you're not consumed. And so, so it's just good for us to say, man, what a blessing that, that I know the living God, and he's really good, and he doesn't change. We saw that earlier in the chapter. He gives us wisdom freely and without without any reproach, like, what'd you do with the last goodness I gave you? So let's, let's just remember to praise God for his wonderful, unchanging goodness. But now James is going to move to say, but, but I want you to think about a specific display of his goodness. If I were to say, hey, everybody take a turn, raise your hand, name one good thing that God has done for you. But James decides, let me give you one good thing, maybe even the second best thing. The best thing is that Jesus died for sinners. But the second best thing is that if you're a Christian, it got applied to you. So what he does is he says, let me give you an example of this good, unchanging God in verse 18. God's goodness brought us, brought you and me. If you're a Christian, his goodness brought us new life. And therefore, it makes us his special creation. Now, let me clarify here. When I say us, that doesn't mean everybody in here, okay? It only means those of us who have been born again. And if you're not sure whether you've been born again, I would urge you to consider how important that is. Jesus said, except you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. But all of us who are born again, God's gone, listen, do you want to remember how good I am to you? Look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth? Well, let's start with the word he brought us forth. This is the only place in the Bible that James or anybody uses this word, but to be brought forth means to be born. You know, Mary brought forth a son, right? So, so, James has gone, look, to show you how good God is, he gave you new birth. You were made alive when you were dead in your sins. But, but I want you to see how he packages this. He doesn't just go, hey, you're saved, aren't you? But number one, he says, your new birth was in the exercise of his will. And I think the reason that, that James says it that way is because the apostles wanted us to, when we think about being born again, don't take a lick of credit. 
Don't think in any way that you helped in this process. So John, John told us something similar to this in John 1, 12. Many Christians know this verse, but they don't think about the next verse. It says, as many as receive Christ, to them he gives the right to be children of God. And we go, amen. But the next verse, it says, well, this is too about the children of God. They were born. You're born again. But it was not of blood. It was not of the flesh. It was not of the will of man. It was entirely from God. And so James is saying, hey, listen, as you were born, remember that was in the exercise of his will. Let's take a, a simple illustration. How much did you contribute to your first birth? You're like, like for me, my mom was going to be in Camden that day, so we arranged to meet up. I didn't have anything to do with it, right? But somehow we have a tendency to think because we made this decision to repent and believe the gospel, that therefore we split it with God. And what we learn from the scripture is, yes, God commands us to repent and believe. And if you don't repent and believe, it's your fault, and you're going to spend eternity in hell. But if you do repent and believe, there's this mysterious, wonderful work of grace where God says, that's because it was in the exercise of my will. You were dead, but I made you alive. You were lost, but I brought you to myself. Now, I realize some Christians are like, that doesn't seem right. What about people that he doesn't call? And I'm going, stop it. Trust this. If people go to hell, it's their fault. But if you're born again, it's God's grace. Okay? So instead of going, you mean to tell me he elected me? You should say, you mean to tell me he chose me? In the exercise of his will, of all the people down here, he chose to make me alive? Yes. And we should praise God for that, that his, his goodness brought me new life. But then notice what he says. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Well, why does he add that? Because it's very important to recognize that no one is ever born again apart from the word of God. It can't happen. If you come to me and say, I'm born again, I say, you ever heard the Bible? You go, not a word in my life. I say, you're not born again then. You have to hear the word of God to be born again. First Peter says it this way, very similar. It must have been something that the apostles would teach. It says, you have been born again by the, by the, by the seed of God's word. And so the means by which people become born again is they hear the word of God over the radio. They read it. Somehow they're exposed to the word of the gospel. And then God mysteriously awakens life in us. And so this should encourage, encourage us to, to, if we're trying to reach our friends, get them into the Bible. I love to, to do apologetics. I love to turn them to the case for Christ. I love to have testimonies. But the number one thing that God uses is the word of God. And so God, James says, remember, God's so good to you, he, he made you alive by his word, right? And then he says, he made us alive for a reason. He says, so that we might be first fruits among his creatures. So somehow as you look down on this planet, and, and I think I would be safe in saying this, there are far fewer born-again people than there are non-born-again people. You're like, how do you know that? Because Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, let's not Americanize this, because God doesn't go, you know, most of the born-again people are in America, right? No way. God's doing work all over the world. But of this, this people among the 
billions of people on the earth, every one of us who's born again, God goes, now here's the deal. You need to think of yourself as different. You're my first fruits, okay? Now, there's a couple ways to think about that. We have to start by going, what does that mean, first fruits? In the Old Testament, as people learned to give back to God, they learned that when they had a harvest of crops, they, that they were to give God 10% from the first and the best, right? So many times Christians today are like, oh, sorry, God, I paid my bills and I got my, I'm sorry, I don't have anything left for you. That is totally wrong as a way to look at your possessions. When you get paid, give to God first. Give him your best. The book of Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your tithe and the first fruits of your increase. Don't say, sorry, God, there's not enough left for you. So in what, in what way are we as Christian God's first fruits? Well, I think the real emphasis here is that the first fruits was to be a celebration that there's more to come. And so I think what God is saying to us is, this world, this universe is busted bad. It's fallen. Because of sin, I have put it under a curse. And most of the creatures down who have made in my image are in rebellion and hopelessly wandering in rebellion against me. But God's going to do something great. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But this renewing starts now. Every time someone comes to Christ, he awakens them and makes them a new creature, anticipating that one day creation itself is going to renewed, be renewed. So we as Christians, I like how, how um, Douglas Moo says, God's grace has been extended through the gospel to his elect so that he can bring into existence a foretaste of his redemptive plan that eventually will encompass all of creation. Think about that. As a Christian, I'm like, God, thank you. I'm one of the, I'm one of the trailers for what's coming. I'm made new. One day, everybody's going to be loving. Everybody's going to live righteously. There's a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But thank you that I get to be a part of that now. And so I had to say, God, I praise you that your goodness, your sovereign goodness made me alive. And now as I live my life, I get to be the first fruit so I can show other people this is what God does. He takes us and makes us new. And one day he's going to do that with creation. So now James is going to say, all right, so here's something you need to know in light of this. He hasn't left the idea of trials and temptations. And when we have trials and temptations, we often get mad. And when we get mad, we often say something that we shouldn't. We blame and we're angry. Remember one time my brother and I were camping, and I was sitting on the side of a hill, and he was cutting down a tree, and it was only about a, I wouldn't even call it a tree, it was probably like a 10-foot piece of rotten tree. The rest of the tree had already fallen, but he wants to cut down this 10-foot piece, and I'm watching him chopping, and while he's chopping, about a one-foot piece just falls off the log, and it happened so fast, I couldn't even yell to him. It just went, and it landed on his head, bonk, right? And immediately, now, what would you think, right, if a log falls on your head, right, and your brother, and, 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 you, and it's me, is a few feet away on the hillside, right? He goes, why did you do that, right? And I go, I didn't. I promise I didn't, right? And in some ways, we have this tendency when something bad happens, we're going to lash out. Somebody's, somebody is going to pay for this. And so, so James says, listen, 
let's talk about angry outbursts. So what we're going to learn in verses 19 through 21, and this is the, the, the last main thing to see here, is that as special creations of our good God, we're supposed to live like we belong to him. It's supposed to make a difference if I go, I'm one of the first fruits. He goes, okay, good. So here's what it's going to look like. And as, as we read this passage, when do you think about, well, how am I supposed to live, especially when bad things happen and I'm mad? So let's start in verse 19. We'll read to 21, then we'll come back and talk about it. He says, this you know, or it could be translated, know this, my beloved brethren. Know that you've been made alive, but here's how to live. First, he says, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. All right, so, so okay. Therefore, he says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, <clears throat> In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Wait, I thought they were already saved. And then he says this. Oh, actually, no, that, that's where we're stopping. I'm sorry. All right, so now, three things he's going to tell us to do. Here's how to live. As those who have been made alive, number one, he says, refrain from angry outbursts. I want you to think about something. Anger itself is not a sin. It's an emotion, okay? So the Bible says in Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. There are some things that should make us angry, right? Someone was just telling me again about that precious little girl from uh, the school next door, Edgewood, that was, you, most of you know what happened to her. That makes me angry that someone did that to her, Right? But what do you do with your anger? Some people go, well, I've just learned how to suppress it. I just shut up and keep it in, but man, I so hate that person, right? Keeping it in and having bitterness is not the answer. But what a lot of people do is they go to the other extreme and they're like, I ain't keeping this in, blow up and just say stuff. And some of you are like, why is he talking to me right now? Because some people struggle with this more than others do. But outbursts of anger where your anger is not kept in check, I want you to understand something. They're sin. Okay? They're not just, well, you know, that's how I am. Galatians chapter 5, as it lists the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, it says, and outbursts of anger. So James is teaching us, okay, refrain from angry outbursts. And, and, and you're like, yeah, well, can you just tell me how to do this? Because my counselor told me to count to 10. But when I get to 11, it's like, well, it's, it's not as simple as just count to 10. But nevertheless, we have to start with, this is what God says. As his first fruits among his creatures, let's learn to live like we belong to him. So the first thing he tells us to do is, is to be quick to hear. Okay, be quick to hear. Now, you know, it's silly, but it's worth saying that, remember, God gave us two ears and one tongue. So maybe if we did twice as much listening, which I'm not, I'm preaching right here. 
But as you think about this whole teaching in the Bible, one of the things the Bible is really clear in is wise people are learning to guard their speech. Like, it's hard to imagine, but I know that I talk too much, right? Some of you are like, no. And, and by the way, let me give you a tip, guys. If you want to look smart, just be quiet. Listen to this. Most of you know Proverbs 17, 27. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. Proverbs actually says, even a fool is considered wise if he closes his mouth. So, so on the one hand, you know, that guy that's just sitting there and he doesn't say anything, he's just listening, you're like, wow, he's deep, right? When in fact, he might be a knucklehead, he might be going, I, I can't wait to have a Philly cheesesteak. But because he didn't say anything, he looks wise, okay? So it's not a, a maxim, quiet people are automatically wise, but it is a maxim that the more we talk, the greater chance we have of sinning. In fact, Proverbs 11 says, in multitude of words, sinning is unavoidable, right? And this is something I struggle with. I talk too much. You could, you could pray for me about that. I, I, have a, I, I have a thing that I keep on my computer. Tom, are you being exemplary in your speech? <clears throat> and some of you are going, does he ever read that? Like, like, but now, I don't struggle too much with angry outbursts. But that doesn't mean, oh, super godly Tom. But I do want you to think about this. If you do struggle with angry outbursts, God is telling us, be quick to hear and slow to speak. I want to read you a quote by Douglas Moo. He said, wise people will learn to control their anger to eliminate one of the most common sources of hasty, unwise speech. Psychologists will sometimes claim that emotions since they're a natural product of our personality, cannot be controlled. So, you know, you can't help it. You can't control it. That's who you are. And he says, no. James is telling us here differently. Emotions are the product of an entire person. But by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, people can be transformed so that we can bring our emotions in line with God's word and his will. So for those of you who struggle with being angry, even if it was just snippy, like, I don't want to make light of that, okay? I don't, want, I don't want you to think that, oh, well, just stop it. It is something that you will have to work on, but we must be intentional and prayerful and depending on the Holy Spirit. And for some of you, I would urge you to get counseling. I've gotten counseling before for issues. There's nothing wrong with that. Have somebody sit down and help you take a Bible and say, why do I struggle with this? Instead of just going, well, that's just who I am, and you're going to have to deal with it. So James says, listen, here's how we can honor Christ. Here's how we can exemplify the gospel. He goes, what does anger do? He says, look, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. At the end of the day, you're like, well, it got my kids to obey. And I'm like, well, it might have got them afraid, but that wasn't what God had. It might have got, got your wife to back off if you were some angry person, and man, I want to beg you, if you're an angry person and you, and you use that against your wife because you're big and she's little, I, I can tell you this, that's a bad idea because God does not look favorably on that. And if, you're, and, and if you're doing that, you need to repent. And wives, if your husband's doing that, and he's got you in fear so that you, you're afraid to tell anybody. You come see us.
because we're here to help and be a refuge for you because that is wrong. That is sin. That's shameful to use your, your strength and masculinity to oppress a woman. However, James is teaching us, hey, listen, refrain from angry outbursts because they're not going to accomplish God's will, but, but that's not the only thing. He says the second thing that we need to do is rid our lives of sinful filth. Now, this is kind of interesting because he says, hey, listen, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But now look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. What does he mean here? Putting aside filthiness. I, I picture here taking out the trash, right? Wouldn't it be nice if this was a one-time event? You know, you only have to do it once after you're married and you have a house. Just take the trash out and then it's all done. But trash continues to accumulate, right? So when James says putting aside all filthiness, I think what he's reminding us here is that we will never be fully free from filthiness. It's really interesting. This word filthiness is a word that, that, that was used in chapter 2 to describe the poor man's clothing. He says, if a poor man comes in in dirty clothes, it's the same word in the Septuagint that's used of, of in Zechariah 3 when, when the angel sees Joshua, the high priest, clothed in filthy garments, okay? But here it's talking about moral filth, okay? So, so when he says, put aside filthiness, Calvin says this, some of the remnants of our old life are still there. So we must throughout life be renewed, such as our perverseness, our arrogance, our sloth. So he says, put these aside. In fact, he borrows a comparison from agriculture. It's kind of like he's saying, root up these weeds, these innate evils that are still in us. We're never wholly cleansed from them in this life, they're continually sprouting up, and so I have to continue to weed out these things that pollute me, okay? So as a Christian, you're not the same old filthy sinner you were before you're saved. You're a new creature in Christ. But as you become aware of your pride, or my lust, or my anger, or my filthiness, or my inappropriate speech, the Bible's telling us, get them out of here, throw them out, take off those old clothes, deliberately rid ourselves of sinful filth. And, and in case you think, well, mine is just a little bit, look at the next phrase he uses. He says, putting aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. I don't like that translation because literally it's the overflowing of wickedness, the abundance of wickedness. It's not like I have to look long and hard and go, oop, I found one little crumb of wickedness still in me. It's like there's a big pile right in front of you. And so I have to be honest about that and say, I haven't arrived just because I had my devotions this morning. I continually need to take the trash out and, and, and repent and ask God's cleansing and go back to the gospel. You say, okay. But then he says, receive the word implanted. And as he talks about that, it's almost like he's saying, we've got to get rid of these other things in order to receive the word. Well, what's that going to look like? 
to receive his word with humility. Maybe one of the reasons I thought about this, that I don't want to study the Bible more than I do at times. Maybe one of the reasons that people don't come eager to hear the word of God is because there's so much garbage that, 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 that there's an impediment here. There's a dumpster between you and the Bible. And if we deal with our dumpster, then we're going to start receiving his word. But notice the attitude. He says, putting aside all filthiness, in humility receive the word implanted. I want to talk about that for a moment. First of all, what does he mean by the word implanted? Because some theologians believe, well, this is, this is planted in us by nature. And I'm going, no. The word of God is not planted in us by nature. We have a conscience. But the only way the word of God gets implanted in you is when you're born again. This is the promise of the new covenant. God says in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to write a new covenant with my people, not like the old one. This time I'm going to write their word in my heart. So when you became a Christian, God planted the seed of his word right in your heart. In fact, John feels so strongly about this. He says in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God will continually practice a life of sin. He can't. He says he can't because God's seed abides in him. So James goes, come on, Tom, deal with your junk. Get it out of your life and receive this precious word that I've already planted in you. Receive it with humility. This isn't a command to get converted. These are already saved people, people who are already born again. And so I think what he's saying here is allow the word to influence you. As Christians, this is a lifelong thing. I don't just go, oh yeah, I used to read my Bible, right? As a Christian, one of the biggest things that prevents people from receiving God's word is pride. Instead of going, that's true, Lord, you're right. I would suggest that many of you, as you search your hearts and you're struggling with your marriage, how much of it is your pride? I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but frequently when I see relational struggles, I go, there's pride here. There's an unwillingness to go, well, I had a part in this, and I'm not responsible for what they act, but how I act and how I react. And so God tells us to humbly receive his word and allow it to influence us. So you go, okay, okay. I don't even have time for the word. Well, that doesn't sound like humbly receiving the word. If you don't have time to get into God's word, well, then get the garbage out of your life so you make time. You're like, it's not garbage, I'm really busy. If you're a Christian and you're too busy to spend time with Jesus, I can tell you if Jesus was standing up here, he'd say, change it, you're too busy. You're like, how do you know he would say that? Because he already did. When Martha and Mary were standing before him and Martha's like, I'm working hard for, or, 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 yeah, Martha's going, I'm working hard for you. And Jesus goes, Martha, stop it. You're worried about so many things and they're good things. I'm feeding you, Jesus. And he goes, yeah, that's great, but there's one thing that's necessary. That's what your sister's doing. She's sitting at my feet hearing my word. That's the most important thing. And, 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 and if, if you're not finding time to do this, and, and I'm not... Don't, don't picture me waking up at five every morning going, hallelujah, can't wait to have two hours in the word. If only you peons were like me. We're all in the same battle, right? But we need to repent of our prideful lethargy in American Christianity. Oh, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time for the Bible. Then change before your life sweeps by and like, if only. Thank you, God, that you speak the truth to us to help us to grow. 
So, what are we supposed to do here? Well, let me walk you through some things. If this passage is saying, hey, remember, every good thing comes from God, take a moment and rehearse God's goodness. Is God good? Can I get an amen? Let me try that again. Is God good? Amen. Has he done good for you? If you're born, are you born again? Okay, about half of you, right? The other half, I don't know. I'm praying. I don't assume, right? So, so take some time today. The Bible says, bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. You know what I did this morning? I said, God, forgive me. I am one ungrateful Christian. I, I, I do not praise you enough. How can we ever praise him enough? The Bible says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Bible says one of the marks of an unbeliever is they don't honor him as God and they're not thankful. And you're like, well, I say thanks for my lunch. It's like it's so much bigger. So just, God, I praise you. My life might not be doing good, but you're good and you don't change. Secondly, how are you doing with angry outbursts? You're like, can we skip that one? Because you're making me mad right now, Tom. <laughs> okay? Third, any trash needs to be put out? You're like, well, yeah, you know, the stuff I read on the computer or the movies I watch or the places I'm going. Oh, I can't say, you can stop. It's about repentance. It's about prayer. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about going, if this is turning my mind into a cesspool, what am I doing here? And, and, and lest any of us be puffed up with pride and go, yeah, well, I don't do that stuff. Then just look deep within when Jesus says, you clean up the outside of the cup but inside you're full of wickedness. See, those inner secret respectable sins like pride and laziness and so forth, we all have, have to do inventory and say, Lord Jesus, wash me again, cleanse me. My son told me he was at a children's event this week and the teacher was teaching, your sins are as scarlet, they're white as snow. And so she put, she put red um, dye into a, a, a water beaker and, and it turned all red. And look at all the stains of sin. And then she put some bleach in there, and it turned white and clean and clear. And then, then, then my son said, but then she put some more red in there, right? But guess what? Because the bleach was in there, it wasn't polluted. So, so ultimately, thank you, Jesus, your blood cleanses me, but I need to take the trash out. And sometimes, week after week, I think some of you may just be going, yeah, yeah, I probably should get on that. Well, what do you mean you should probably get on that? If you're born again, do it. Right? And I don't want to make light of that. It may be a struggle. We have to do it through Christ who strengthens us as a community. This is why we urge you to get into community. But do you even acknowledge it? Or you're like, ah, it's not my problem. And then third, or not third, I, I don't teach mass. <laughs> <laughs> Are you receiving his will, which is revealed through his word with humility? Holy Spirit's speaking, right? Have you already made up your mind about stuff that you're like, don't confuse me with the facts of the Bible. I've already made up my mind, right? And then ultimately it says the word of God will save your soul. Can you say with assurance the Lord has saved my soul? Right? As you, as you sit and listen to the word of God, what, what, is, what are you talking about? Souls being saved, Right? Well, if you don't know what that means, but you're, but you're interested, 
it means that the Lord saves you from having to go to hell. And, and he saves you because he loves you and he died for you to save you. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And he shed his blood on the cross and he was punished instead of you and me. And he paid it all. There's no purgatory. There's no, you don't have to do anything to earn it. He offers it freely. You just come and, and you repent and believe in him. If the Bible says, whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. Do you want the Lord to save your soul? Then call on the Lord and ask him, Lord, would you save my soul? Plant your word in my heart and help me to grow in grace. Amen? Amen. Boy, the people that aren't here today, they really needed to hear this, didn't they? <laughs> so let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word. It's awesome. Your word is alive. All of those of us who know you, your sheep hear your voice. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for making us alive. Wake up your children who have been sleeping. May many of them take out the trash. And may all of us continue to grow. Thank you for your goodness. May your praises be on our lips in a new way this week. May you put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise. And may we be a humble church who's learning to receive the word. God, extend your mercy and kindness to all who are hurting this morning, to all who are brokenhearted. Show them favor, for you do not despise a broken and contrite heart. For those who are stubborn and proud, may your word be like a hammer in a fire that breaks the rock to pieces. And if there's anyone here who's not yet saved, Lord, may this be the day that they repent and believe and receive the word of God. We thank you and we look forward to how you're working in our church. Bring us back tonight, Lord, with joy, watching how our church is being led by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. For it's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. If you would like to talk or pray about something, I'll be here, especially if you would like to learn more about how to be saved. Just come on up and we'll set something up or we'll match you up with someone. Have a great day.